0: Welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director here at Boston Private. Today, I'm joined by two accomplished executive search professionals who specialize in supporting family offices. They're going to share with us their unique insights and experiences with this often opaque part of the family office world. Today, we'll divide our conversation into two parts. First off, the, the state of the family office search industry during the pandemic and what we should expect over the next three to 12 months. And then we'll switch gears and talk about best practices and family office human capital management from these two industry veterans. So let's get underway. Uh, first, I'm joined by Neil Kreuzberger, president of Kreuzberger Associates. Uh, Neil, give us a quick snapshot of your background.
1: Eddie, Good morning and thanks. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to join you and Michael in this dialogue here this morning. Uh, I've been in the search arena over 30 years. Uh, Prior to that, I started in public accounting and then uh, spent a number of years in private industry controller and CFO for a venture-backed software firm. And for the last 15 years, 15, 16 years, I've been pretty exclusively focused in the family office arena, nationally working with uh, family offices and in leadership roles.
0: Thanks, Neil. Uh, My next guest is Michael Rosenblatt, president of the Quest organization. Uh, Michael, could you give us an overview of your experience?
2: Sure, my pleasure. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me as part of this opportunity. Uh, I started my life as a CPA as well and uh, I've worked at Deloitte for six years. I was the CFO of a public company and many years ago was uh, recruited into the business. I run the Quest organization, one executive search and advisory firm uh, that specialize in family offices as well. We take a holistic view to uh, search and our entire staff is comprised of CPAs and MBAs, and we look to be value-added to all of our clients.
0: Great, let's get started. So Michael, uh, how prepared were family offices for this pandemic uh, from a human Capital and a personnel perspective?
2: Well, I don't think any of us were prepared for this, but I do think that many of the family offices have adapted fairly well to the pandemic. It's uh, um, family offices realized that they need a strong operating Uh, framework, which is critical to business continuity. Uh, And what they did adapt to quickly is working remotely uh, using additional technology considerations around infrastructure, data security, and access. Uh, And many have adapted fairly well, and many are are still playing catch-up. Most, In my opinion, most single-family offices will shift to a hybrid family office model with more use of outsourcing and a more remote workforce. So while no one expected it, we were all thrown off. I do believe that many of them have adapted fairly well um, to the epidemic. In addition, I think that many of them have already been upgrading the quality of their people and also of their technology prior to this, which made it somewhat better. But again, many of them are also still uh, being challenged.
0: Thanks, Michael. Neil, same question to you. Did, you. did you, any of your clients, were any of them prepared for the, for the pandemic from an HR perspective?
1: Yeah, thanks, Eddie. And I'd I'd have to agree with Michael. This has really been a tough set of circumstances to have been prepared for, um, or really to have anticipated. And I think there are a lot of people out there today wishing that our leaders would have paid closer attention to Bill Gates's comments back in 2015. Uh, If we had done that, we would have been better prepared for what's unfolded over the last several months. Um, Certainly, I think as a society, we've been through some accelerated learning in dealing with this complex pandemic and how it's manifest. And I think that'll definitely help moving forward relative to our preparedness. Uh, But I think, as Michael said, for most of us, this caught us by surprise, obviously, including wealth owners and family office leaders. Uh, However, one of the nice elements and characteristics of the family office model is that they tend to be boutique service delivery models, very similar to investment company models, uh, oftentimes very entrepreneurially spirited. Uh, so they can adapt and change pretty easily, and certainly much more easily than larger, more complex uh, models. And as we know, uh, you don't have the resource constraints that you do in the commercial world. Um, so if resources are needed to fight uh, this type of a 911 situation, uh, they're available. So I, I think for the most part, they've, they've done pretty well and are adapting, and, and as Michael animated, uh, they're gonna be uh, looking for this change going forward.
0: So, Neil, let's uh, continue a conversation on those resources. And in, in terms of how the pandemic has caused a lot of us to move to a digital by default delivery of services uh, in this current work environment, do you see family offices continuing to go in this direction?
1: I do, Eddie. Uh, I, I think uh, perhaps some have, have shifted better than others or or were more ready than others. But for the most part, yes, I think this is going to be part of the uh, part of the normal reality uh, as we move ahead. Uh, I think uh, family offices have realized that a virtual work environment is going to play an increasingly significant role, um, and I think they are addressing this new reality actively. Uh, whether it's technology, uh, they've certainly started moving in that direction. Cloud-based services, accommodating remote work structures, um, and I think for those uh, offices that tended to have a more traditional view or, or a work in the office type of culture, they've certainly been forced to make a very quick pivot uh, to this new reality. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges right now going on, I, I'm sure Michael has seen this as well, but uh, are the reentry considerations or reopening considerations, uh, designing workspaces, how do you deal with elevators, common areas like kitchens or eating areas, you know, bathrooms, OSHA requirements. This is all brand new territory for everybody, and it's it's really getting a lot of attention and focus right now. Um, and I've even uh, I've even heard a number. In speaking to several of my clients, a number of family office leaders at this point have indicated that they're really in no rush to reopen, just given some of the challenges that are out there.
0: Thanks, you Neil know, uh, Michael. You know. In terms of uh, family office compensation, have you seen any changes uh, in family office compensation structures uh, during this pandemic?
2: I think the pandemic has caused uh, more of a sense of urgency as it relates to compensation for executives. It has already been on the change and we've been part of our consulting, um, handling that as assets on the management of single family offices rise, the structures will employ more non-family members as executives, and that will, as part of a pre- professional trend, cause uh, the, the um, compensation to change. Compensation for executives is directly correlated with the assets under management, especially from a total compensation perspective. So what's happening in the family office space is much more use of long-term compensation plans. And uh, I'd say, I think approximately from the studies I've seen, three out of five families are providing some form of long-term incentive compensation. And in addition, what we've been seeing a lot of over the last three to five years, uh, more co-investment opportunities and carried interest being uh, quite prevalent. Um, So while many families still use discretionary bonuses um, as well, and and based on bonus compensation, there is a gap between those and the uh, LTI. I find that today LTI an important recruitment and retention tool in, uh, in today's increasingly competitive landscape. I know we're going to talk about some of that later, but families considering adding long-term incentive compensation should make sure that their incentives match their family's values and goals as well as the current market environment.
0: Thanks, Michael. Neil, how, how about on your end? Have you seen anything directly uh, related to compensation uh, during the pandemic?
1: yeah you know, i i really haven't it, relative to the the single family office arena i really haven't seen any noticeable trends or changes uh relative to any changes being made in comp structures as a, as a result of the pandemic uh, there have been some layoffs and comp reductions in the wealth management and mfo spaces uh, but i've not heard of any such moves in the sa- single family office arena um, although certainly I, I think as michael was intimating those offices with performance based plans uh, certainly might be impacted later um, and with those offices with long term incentive plans in place uh, certainly based on investment structures especially if they're direct investments or private equity or venture uh, investments involved uh, they're they're definitely going to be uh, looked at um, you know throughout the throughout the remaining part of the years things tend to ease a bit Uh, And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of triage support required on some of the portfolio companies. Um, But again, one of the big advantages of of a family office uh, is not only the security, but the patient capital perspective. Uh, And I think most family offices uh, that I've been in touch with are really focused on just getting through the storm as safely as possible, uh, making the necessary changes to their business models as needed. Uh, And certainly for those with cash reserves, there's going to be plenty of buying opportunities uh, on the backside of the storm.
0: Thanks, Neil. Uh, Michael, uh, you know, pulling on the thread that uh, Neil had talked about a little bit earlier in terms of remote working. Is this going to be a trend that continues as, as we sort of transition back into our offices, our family office is going to be more remote?
2: Uh, Yes, I agree with Neil uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, I think it's going to be a trend. I don't think it's a minor blip. Um, More single family offices will shift to a hybrid family office model with resurgence of outsourcing and a growing acceptance of a talented mobile workforce. Um, There's a lot of technologies and support strategies available now to assist families in the move away from doing everything in-house. And I, and I also believe there'll be an increased reliance on outsourcing IT roles and other responsibilities, including health desk, hardware and software maintenance. I don't particularly see a large number of family office executives working remotely. However, I do believe their staff will work remotely and the use of outsourcing functions will increase significantly. Um, I still believe there'll be a strong need for the key executives to work uh, at the office and be close to the family.
0: Thanks, Michael. So let's shift gears uh, into best practices. So, Neil, you know, let's start with the family that's considering to start a family office, or they might be in the early, di- early days of such an endeavor. How should they get started, and what do you think are the key areas they should think about when they're hiring staff?
1: Uh, great comment, um, and certainly something that, that many families have uh, managed with and, and uh, dealt with uh, over the years. You know, for a startup or early stage model, the wealth owner really needs to spend a lot of time defining, defining what they want out of the office, both near term and down the road. Uh, this might be turned or coined kind of a go slow to go fast part of the journey. Goals and objectives need to be clearly uh, understood and talked about and articulated, especially relative to investment plans and strategies. The service delivery model and structure needs to be fleshed out what functions are going to be incorporated from within, what are going to be outsourced, um, You know, how many households or family members are going to be served, and critical is, is what sort of decision-making and or governance structures uh, will be used. Um, you know, another consideration is whether a single principal, is this a single principal model uh, or wealth owner or is it a multi-gen, uh, multiple family member um, type of model? Uh, making, in the latter case, making more of the decision-making consensus base, which certainly has challenges. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of early-stage planning that needs to be uh, established for setting a good foundation, and I don't think that this point can really be emphasized enough. Um, once the organization needs are then defined or at least better understood, then you can start thinking about a human capital plan and the various functional needs and and how they will be staffed. And I think those uh, really become pretty evident. Uh, Some of the key elements I would look for is getting leaders or a leader or leaders who really understand the family office culture and dynamics. Family offices are a different world. You need someone with really relevant experience. Uh, Get someone who has been through the building out of an office, uh, has been through setting up uh, infrastructure and implementing systems. Uh, I've, I've seen a number of times where uh, you, you want to be careful about hiring someone who really hasn't, doesn't have the direct relevant experience of this early-stage formation. Um, and you want to, you want to get clear on some of the key milestones. Uh, what do you want to accomplish? What, what does success look like, you know, 6, 12, of 18, 24 months down the road? That's obviously an ongoing dialogue, but more time on that up front. Uh, in terms of exploring that, is really helpful as they as they get underway with building things out.
0: Thanks, Neil Michael. What about established family offices? What should they be thinking about when they're looking to bring new folks onto their family office uh, staff?
2: Well, some of the key things uh, that we find the number one uh, consideration is culture, which Neil mentioned. The culture, you know, um, is so important because family offices differ quite a bit from a corporate environment. And it's really essential to define the culture of the family and then list those attributes that would be important for prospective candidates. Uh, We have found in our search assignments that most successful candidates do come from other family offices or other very similar environments. The second most important consideration is skill set. It's critical that they have outstanding skills and expertise and they're able to work independently and have a proven track record of success. And the third, characteristic uh, we focus on is flexibility and reliability. Um, Most principals are very demanding and can change their mind on the spur of the moment. And we find it essential that the appropriate candidates have the ability to adapt quickly to change, have the mindset to do whatever it takes without getting upset, and the desire and ability to be there whenever they are needed. So those are the three primary um, attributes we look for when we're uh, identifying candidates for family offices.
0: Thanks, Michael. Uh, what about uh, the question that comes up often with families considering, uh, you know, building a family office is the structure of their family office. You know, the broad categories of a multifamily office versus a single family office and all the different flavors that they come in. You know, from your your perspective, you know, how sh- what should they be keeping in mind when they're trying to decide between those two or more uh, family office structures?
2: Well, both multifamily and single family offices have s- Numerous advantages and disadvantage, but we're seeing an increase in both, but more in single family offices as they're becoming much more sophisticated than they have in the past um, family control and governance is enhanced in a single family office and there's far greater flexibility and dependence with a single family office. Um, so you know, the multi the multifamily office obviously has another certain significant advantage as well in terms of cost effectiveness, bringing in other experts. But one of the key considerations is also the amount of assets. Um, if a family has assets of less than $300 million, it may not be cost effective to have a single-family office. Um, so the six areas that we break it down to for consideration of determining a single-family office versus a multifamily office are culture fit, involvement and control the services that are provided investments philanthropy wealth management tax planning the fourth would be the resources you have and again in a multifamily office you do have an extensive amount of resources which is advantageous Um, the cost again if less than 300 million that's a problem Uh, and objectivity have an independent viewpoint on how they should be handling the investments and managing their business Um, so it really depends but those are the considerations we recommend when uh, trying to decide whether SFO or NFO.
0: Thanks, Michael. Neil, talk to us about trends in compensation models uh, and structures that you've seen family office put into place. There's certainly a, a lot of different ones that are out there. Are there, are there uh, ones that are more successful, or ones that are kind of emerging now as, as being more popular?
1: Uh, great question, Eddie. Thanks. Uh, and as you know, this is a this is a big topic, and we could spend a lot of time here. Um, let me, let me share some thoughts. Uh, so from a framing standpoint, uh, historically, the family office comp arena has been a very inefficient market. Um, however, there's been a lot of progress made in recent years. Uh, you could have uh, similar um, family office leaders in similar roles for similarly sized uh, family office structures at different parts of the country with significant different comp levels. Um, But as this arena has continued to grow and professionalize with more information flow uh, in terms of uh, what's been out there historically, um, it's really improved. Uh, Much of this has been helped by a lot of the survey work that's been done in recent years. Firms like and Botop Consulting, and, and some of the others have done a lot of great research work to help capture some of these trends. I think some of the th- key key comments would be cash comp, base and bonus, uh, continues to be the primary uh, incentive um, component uh, of, ex- certainly, of executive comp plans. Uh, family offices um, are, they're kind of evolving out of the, what have historically been more entrepreneurially based, uh, largely discretionary, incentivized types of plans. More performance-based or structured plans, and this is a good. This is actually this is a good transition. It helps with alignment. It helps keep uh, you know keep expectations in balance between the wealth owner and the and the employee. Um, long-term incentives, I think, as, as uh, Michael just alluded to, long-term incentives are continuing to be used more and more, and becoming uh, more of the norm than they have historically. And another, another thing that we see is, um, benefit structures, uh, are continuing to improve or richen. Um, you know, these can, uh, really help add to retention and add to the glue that, uh, that employees are looking for. Uh, we see unlimited PTO levels, um, medical, medical plans that are covered 100%, even the copays, um, matching contributions for 529 plans for, uh, for uh, employees with children, um, and then certainly contributions to donor-advised fund uh, of the employee's choice. These are some, uh, you know, things that are continuing to get enhanced and, and I think some very positive moves.
0: Thanks, Neil. Uh, you know, Michael, what are some potential pitfalls um, and things that you you tell your family office clients to be aware of when it comes to compensation?
2: Well, you know, the, the base and bonus and cash are the simplest. So that's really, there's not too many pitfalls there. But when you start putting in a long-term incentive plans and co-investment and carried interest opportunities, if the person doesn't work out, if there's uh, conflicts of interest things, it could become complicated and have legal issues. So one of the things that we try to do with all the plans is make sure we set up with a vesting formula and make sure that the plans are put in place so that they have an opportunity to make sure they vest and they don't just give them the uh equity interest or, or whatever a percentage uh we're doing uh, they're putting in place now deferred compensation also can be set up that way also investing formula so that uh, that will uh, remove some of the complications but uh, that's where it can get complex and expensive if you put those plans and they don't work out but i will say that we're seeing a trend in that uh neil is correct certainly base and bonus is still the most prevalent and the simplest the uh, the candidates are the, uh, getting much more sophisticated, and that's what they're looking for. Because how do you create wealth? They create wealth by getting some equity in the in the uh, the, the the company, the opportunity, or, or business investments that they make. So if we're seeing more of that. It is more complex, and that's why you have to be very careful how you structure it. Well, Eddie, uh, Eddie, Mike, can I
1: follow up? Yeah, go can ahead. I follow up please comment. Um, I agree with Michael's comments. One other thing, just to be mindful of probably one of the biggest challenges that I have heard, uh, especially in, in long-term incentive plans, um, you really need to model the heck out of the, out of the plan. Uh, just run it through a lot of different scenarios and ranges of value, what it could be worth, what different payoff levels will, uh, will be based on certain levels of performance, even, um, you know even levels that seem unlikely. Uh, you just never know if a if a, if a you know a home run or a grand slam is is hit, the wealth owner needs to be comfortable you know paying those um, those bonus payouts so th- there 's no substitute for a lot of modeling at the front end um, and one more trend that just just to add is that we 're seeing m- many more employment agreements uh being used they they are Becoming increasingly common for really all senior, certainly senior-level roles.
0: Well, it's a good point, Neil. We we've talked about that uh, scenario planning and the potential sticker shock uh, of, of those principles on, to the upside uh, if things yeah. happen well. So that that's a that's a great point. Uh, Michael, let's shift gears to the other side of the table. What if, you know, talk to us about your candidates or if you know somebody that wanted to break into the family office executive world and find a role, how should they do it?
2: Uh, uh, <laughs> quite challenging if they have not had experience in it. So if a candidate has no prior experience in a family office, it's much more difficult to make their transition. Uh, however, due to a shortage of quality candidates from family offices, they're becoming more flexible today Uh, One of the ways, of course, is to network through people you know, Uh, from people you know, from professionals, from folks like yourself, Ed, from bankers, from accountants, from lawyers, and obviously colleagues. Uh, And another way, of course, is to utilize services of myself and Neil uh, where we can help make that transition. And what we recommend uh, for them to do, by the way, is if they work in a similar environment, which could be closely held business or a similar business, a hedge fund or private equity fund um, that mirrors the type of um, atmosphere and environment that a family office has, they should be able to revise and write their resume to accentuate some of those uh, experiences they've had. So Analyze your experience, put whatever you can that, that's credible on your resume that, that also would coincide with some of the skills that you might need for that. Uh, and, and I do think that in, in many cases we have found people and I can't tell you how many significance that are looking to make that transition and are looking for help. So uh, again, networking, sourcing and possibly using folks like uh, Neil and myself.
0: Great points, Michael. Uh, Neil, what do you look for uh, in successful candidates that are looking to break into the family office world?
1: Thanks, Eddie. Uh, let me just add one more comment to Michael's uh, to Michael's last point. Another another path can be uh, we see it on the on the financial side for CFOs or uh, financial folks. Uh, another path into this world can be through a consulting channel. Um, if someone has not had the direct experience with a family office, uh, but maybe they're brought in to help with the systems transition an acquisition, uh, uh, some analysis, a divestiture, et cetera, sale of a company, um, oftentimes that can be a great uh, interim platform to get some experience in, you know, in, in the family office arena. In terms of some of the key things we look for um, is you know, heavily on relevant skills and experience in a family office setting. Um, that's really critical, and that's what we were just speaking to. It's, it's really hard, and there, there's a, quite a bit of risk for the family to bring someone in who has not had some exposure either working directly for or, as Michael alluded to, in a similarly uh, structured environment. Maybe it was a boutique investment firm, but there was a lot of stuff being done for the wealth owner or the CEO uh, that would emulate uh, a family office setting. High emotional intelligence uh, critical for this world. Uh, do they have the service gene in their DNA? Um, some people really enjoy and, and enjoy taking care of and, and serving others, and uh, that that is a critical element. Uh, another characteristic is uh, what's so common is is the expert generalist type of role. Um, these roles are often often quarterbacks. They're often Uh, given uh, all sorts of different tasks uh, on short notice where things have to be figured out um, and researched and solutions have to be identified um, and people need to be able to wear a lot of hats and need to be comfortable in that role. Um, Demonstrated leadership, uh, smart, creative, you know, sound decision-making and obviously without You know, looking at our current situation, uh, I think some of the some of the highlights of being able to navigate through a storm, you know, navigate in a crisis, and and be effective uh, in a in an environment like the one we're in currently uh, is critical.
0: So, Neil, is it better to be a generalist or a specialist or is it really just depend on the role and the family and the fit that's what's there? And given that a lot of family office executives will, as you mentioned, wear many different hats in their, in their particular roles.
1: Yeah, well, if you look at the, if you look at the family office leaders, in, certainly in the U.S., uh, they, uh, the vast majority tend to come through two paths. They either come through an investment path, kind of CIO director of investments, um, uh, investment advisory role that has manifest. It's the wealth owner who had a liquidity event and he has his, his wealth advisor set up his family office. So it's more of an investment centric role. The other side is is think CFO, COO. Uh, so it's the tax director at Deloitte. It's the, uh, it's the CFO of the business that was sold that then comes on board and helps with building out the infrastructure and operations. And those really have uh, that I think incorporates the majority of, of family office, certainly the heads of family office roles. Um, you know, in terms of expert generalists or not, you know, within that within each of those categories, um, that you certainly have to be well versed in, in all of the areas uh, touched, trust um, and estate, taxes, Uh, You might not be an expert, but you need to be able to understand the complex structures, Uh, but I would say, uh, if I had to to choose, I would say expert generalist is going to be the skill set that is going to be more commonly or widely received than a specific, you know, highly involved expertise. Thanks, Neil.
0: Michael, what about families? You know, uh, where should they tune, turn to when it comes to human capital? I mean, there isn't exactly a family office factory of talent uh, out there, or, or is there? Uh,
2: no, no, there is There is no family office factory. In fact, um, it's clearly not an excess of talent out there. They, they said so family offices have grown significantly, especially over the past 10 years. Uh, I believe if we went back to about 2008, 2009, there were about a thousand family offices globally, and now there's over ten thousand. So ten times it has is, is, it has is grown and continues to grow. Um, there are many uh, family office associations and networks, of course, where uh, they can network into. It could use job boards, um, and of course, they could use specialty recruiters like myself and and Neil. They could also. Uh, uh, also look for referrals from consultants and CPAs and attorneys and bankers, which is typically what's also done. Um, what we're finding, though, there really is a shortage of talent, and therefore many, many families that may not have used a search firm are now coming to us because they just can't find what they need. And in addition, how they find the need um, is important. If just by going by people that have been referred to them is, we don't find actually the most effective because even though someone may have a skill set or an education or a background doesn't mean it's the right fit. And in a family office, um, it's really critical that you get some of the things we talked about earlier down, which is the culture fit, the skill set, the adaptability, and some of those things that are uh, not so easy to, to find. Um, so again, to find the best available athlete requires an extensive amount of time and research, and, and a bad hire can be extremely costly. And family offices more well, than any other type of organization we've ever dealt with really do not want turnover. Because of the confidentiality uh, nature of their business, they really want to do it right. So there are, again, many ways to attract people, no problem, but to get the right talent, they could use all of the resources that I I just suggested.
0: Thanks, Michael. No, Neil, uh, Michael talked about fit uh, for a family office. You know, fit or functional ability, what's more important uh, when a family's considering to hire staff?
1: Uh, Certainly both are important, but I would, Uh, I would have to go with fit. Um, You know, fit is critical, uh, and I think trumps just about everything. Um, There are a lot of great, talented people. Uh, There are a lot of great, uh, highly skilled uh, resources. Um, But And and organizational fit is important in any hire, you know, even in the commercial world. But I think, as Michael just alluded to, you know, within the family office structure, uh, it's just paramount and it, it's critical to, you know, to identify that. It takes time. Um, you, you really need to spend the time through the vetting process, uh, getting collective inputs of, of all the relevant uh, kind of stakeholders or team members and family members. Um, and it's a, uh, it needs to be a, a kind of a slow, methodical, deliberate process. Uh, but, but fit is critical.
0: Well, speaking of family members, I um, mean, what do you think about uh, family members becoming part of the, the family office uh, staff structure? I mean, any potential issues uh, to keep in mind with your experience in this?
1: Um, I think this is really a, a it depends type of response um, because it, it really is impacted by a number of variables. Um, you know, is it if it's a large multi-gen uh, family office that that has a history of uh, bringing family members into the organization, it can be a wonderful channel um, and can help significantly with perpetuating the legacy of the um, you know of the family 's interests um, other times it, it also has to you see different uh, kind of different structures or or different uh, strategies, but uh, there are times when uh, you know, when it doesn't make sense, um, either one, there just isn't a role, the the family member might not have an interest level or competency, but even though they, they might not be in an employee relationship, there are other ways to very effectively integrate their involvement um, through some maybe committee or advisory or support. Uh, maybe they're involved in the investment committee or or some of the governance, governance committees, uh, family members can be involved with hiring decisions uh, and be, you know, be part of that process, which is, a, again, another good way to um, to get them involved. But it really kind of depends on the uh, the structure of the office, the situation of the office, and, um, you know, some of the dynamics there.
0: Thanks, Neil. Now, Michael, in, in terms of a career path, are, are family offices becoming a career path for individuals that are that are looking to, to get into that space or, or, or are in that space?
2: Uh, yes, they actually are. As a matter of fact, family offices have become one of the most sought-after places to work. Uh, I can't tell you how many candidates have expressed a strong interest in working for a family office over the last several years, coming out of hedge funds, private equity shops, uh, even at a cost of less compensation in total package. Um, And some of the reasons are uh, several. One, they're well compensated in a family office, different. So instead of a low base and high bonus, which can be variable depending upon how well the the fund does, it's more of a steady income. Two, the quality of life, which is absolutely one of the most essential reasons people wanna leave funds to work for family offices. Three, as we talked earlier, there may be co-investment opportunities, carried interest, which they're not gonna get in many corporate environments. Four, stability, Um, much more stable than a corporate environment in most cases. Um, Number five, the responsibility they can get in a family office might even be higher because family offices do not have as much structure. They have less people and they may have more exposure to senior people running the firm and may be able to get involved in more aspects of the business. Um, and in, in a lot of cases, they're treated like family. You know, one of the things that I find, and again, they all differ, but so many families care so much about their people, even through the COVID-19, What some of these families are doing has been incredible for another story someday, but the charitable contributions, the way they've cared about their people and concern, and even, even providing family money for their families that don't even work for them. Um, and the last piece, their benefits are excellent too. They usually pay for, full benefits for the entire family, which corporate America has moved quite a bit away from. So yes, it is, and it is different because it's not like up and out like you would have at a a substantial bank or a very large investment firm or company, it's different. So that's why the culture piece that we talked about earlier is so important. They have to understand that that piece is there, but many, many people are desirable of working in a family office now.
0: Thanks, Michael. So uh, Neil, once you got those professionals in the door, um, you know, how do you keep them engaged? I mean, you've talked about the the professionalization and the specialization at some family offices where we see some uh, former corporate executives, venture capital, private equity professionals, hedge fund managers. I mean, how do you keep talent like a former private equity, uh, principal engaged when a family office might do much fewer deals uh, than they may be used to in their, in their previous environments?
1: Uh, great comment that's a uh, and, and that's a challenge um you know if if you look at first kind of just retention overall and i know michael touched base uh, touched this briefly but you know three of the key things for for retention overall are um you know interesting and meaningful work um pe- people have to be engaged and challenged um a very strong well-defined culture and then you know uh, good, strong market compensation. If those three things are in place, uh, retention works really well. Um, now, when you're talking about an investment professional and, and in a kind of low deal flow model uh, or where things have ebbed a bit, uh, it's a challenge. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, professionals leave roles and, and move because uh, work challenges and, and the ability to have an impact and accomplish Uh, things have slowed Um, and they and I think the uh, um, one of the one of the initial things relative to deal flow is that you need to make sure at the outset you have some real to the extent you can have some clear expectations coming in obviously oftentimes things change and a, a very active model might slow and go more passive for a while but to the extent the wealth owner and principal can, can have a, a lot of time discussing um, investment outcomes and investment strategies and levels of activity or deployment of capital in the near term, you know, that's a good thing. Uh, it also it depends on where someone is in their career path. If it's a younger professional uh, really looking for hockey stick career growth, uh, that might not be aligned as as well as someone who maybe has a little more experience and and wants a little more work life balance they've come out of wall street they've come out of the um the real fast paced you know uh, hectic environment and and as michael alluded to they want a little more balance and and one to two deals a year would be a very nice pace
0: Thanks, Neil. Uh, what about risk management and, and and the hiring of family office employees? How diligent uh, are the families at, at screening before hiring? You know, maintaining some of those background checks on a periodic basis after hiring. Uh, you know, as compared to some you know corporate or other uh, small medium enterprises that you are aware of or I've worked with in the past.
1: Yeah, I think there's been a lot of a lot of improvement here in the last five to ten years. Um, and again, as we touch touched base on, um, these in our looking at the, the uh, challenging uh, employment uh, landscape and the, the legal, uh, you know, some of the legal outcomes, uh, it's critical to have good pre-employment screening processes in place. Um, NDAs, confidentiality agreements are standard, background checks uh, have proliferated. Uh, in their use and are critical and i I do know as you've alluded to Eddie that uh, periodically those are those are done ongoing uh, but employment risk is a huge exposure area uh, for companies period and certainly with you know certainly for family offices um, and even more so in a in a family that's operating in a multi state environment with some of the challenges of of states like New York and California where um, you know the states make it very challenging to be uh, uh, to be an employer and with so many so many uh, employment considerations to be mindful of.
0: Thanks, Neil uh, Michael. You know there's a lot of good discussion and you know actually some really good research around family business succession, but much less so on family office succession planning. Uh, talk to us about how families are best approaching this area, and you know what works and what really hasn't worked.
2: Well, succession plan is a vital activity for family offices. It supports the, typically the widespread goal of preserving family wealth, and defending charitable causes and having a positive social impact. Yet too many families have not put succession plans in place. In fact, the numbers could be almost 50%. Um, now, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, succession planning is becoming even more essential uh, with significant health care, cyber security issues, and so much economic uncertainty around the globe, um, people are now putting in place or trying to come up with a discussion, but we have more calls on that than ever. Um, but it really should support the goals of preserving the wealth, the family wealth, the benefit, uh, the charitable causes, and of course, have a positive impact on us uh, socially. What we're finding is that they get caught up in, in a lot of controversy. It's a very difficult issue. Barriers get in the way, um, conflicts of interest, what happens is a lot of families will get together, have a conversation, start to talk about their goals and governance and things of that nature. And they get into a dispute and it never gets resolved. What we recommend that has worked is bringing in someone to be sort of a moderator. And that could be any one of uh, some of the folks we said earlier, it could be your accountant, your lawyer, your banker, your, could be a, someone like myself or Neil, who can uh, really be the person to moderate and make sure that you have a set of goals that you achieve it, that you come to conclusions because the the main thing really is trying to preserve their wealth. Um, And the way to do that is to have a true succession plan. What we have found is so many succession plans are so ineffective and they're not not real, they're not viable. So we try to challenge them on that and make sure that they consider it and also make sure everyone's involved and uh, to get a, a uh, got to get a consensus th- to agree, and, and it's got to something that's going to evolve. A succession plan changes constantly. It's not something you can make one plan and execute it. It's going to constantly change la- out of input from all the family members, uh, and it's so critical. And in, it's one of my biggest bones of weakness with our clients is that they do not have a good succession plan.
0: Thanks, Michael Neil. In terms of you know next gen support and family education. Are are these things that family offices should get involved with or or, uh, have you seen successful ones do? And is it a matter of marshaling resources internally or the combination of that and working with external consultants?
1: Uh, Great comment, Eddie, and and I think it's all of the above. Yes, it's critical. I mean, next-gen support, family education, again, are areas that have continued to evolve uh, and improve and professionalize over the last five to ten years, uh, you look at some of the key studies uh, by Fox and some of the other organizations, but families are spending more and more resources annually uh, on education um, it's critical to uh, just continuing to help um, you know not only serve the the family structure but uh, just in terms of helping preserve the culture and and have the family members uh, be more uh, aware and comfortable with uh, with what having wealth means and and how they can uh, manage it and be a steward of it um, moving ahead uh, so yeah it's a huge it's a very significant area there are a lot of great resources out there uh, that are available to to families um, and if you know if people want to get uh, uh, get some leads or updates there we can i am circle back after, but lots of lots of external help.
0: Thanks, Neil. And, and Neil, you mentioned this a little bit earlier in terms of data and benchmarking information for you know, you know, human capital considerations, whether it's compensation or other pieces. Are are there other good uh, compensation studies or, or studies of this nature that uh, people should be uh, uh, looking at, or 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 is there maybe some grounds uh, for for folks to start a new study?
1: I think there's been a lot of, as as I mentioned earlier, I think there's been a lot of improvement uh, in the family office compensation arena. um, uh, Albeit um, more of the work has been done at the C level roles, head of the family office, CIO, CFO, um, COO. Um, So I think there's not, I I know that's going to continue to improve, uh, but there's been a lot of great headway there. Um, I think where uh, it still can be a struggle one of the one of the challenges of the surveys is that uh, is getting uh, geographic uh, slices on the data. Um, you know comp levels in San Francisco and New York are very different than St. Louis and Chicago, um, and depending on the weighting of the participants uh, in the survey, uh, you know the the data output can be uh, it can be varied, but for the most part, there's been a lot of good headway here uh, again if, if people want some specific information, we can have them follow up. Um, one of the challenging areas for benchmarking is is it's some of the staff levels uh, controllers um, estate managers, resident managers, uh, household staff. Uh, again, that varies greatly uh, depending on the geographic area, um, and I think that's an area where uh, o- over the next few years we're hopefully going to see uh, see some tightening or see some more data, but it's, it's pretty widespread.
0: Cool. Do you see the same uh, when you're trying to find good data and benchmarks for the families that you support?
2: Yeah, pretty much. Uh, th- there is a lot of data out there and uh, I I agree with Neil no no I don't really have anything to add on that but uh, there were many surveys many statistics we do our own uh, and uh, we we really try to get very independent objective viewpoints most of them are pretty good I think they're pretty fairly accurate with the information that they provide though so uh, some parting thoughts Michael you
0: know what's the one piece of advice that you give to family office uh, families that already have a family office and are looking to optimize uh, their current situation uh, from a per- personnel perspective?
2: Well, what I would recommend is to, um, to take a hard look at all of their key executives, all, of, all their uh, staff, not just staff, but the key executives primarily. And um, I would get a, really get a feel for whether or not if they're doing a great job or not, they find a highly efficient, very loyal, doing a wonderful job. And I would meet with them um, and discuss with them if they're happy, uh not only with their role, the environment, and try and get an idea of where they are, because um if you want to keep some of your key executives, it's real important that you communicate with them. One of the biggest weaknesses in, in family offices and in every aspect of their life is lack of or poor communication. So if you can get a sense of what is important to them, like I'm saying, like I said earlier, many things have changed, quality of life being much more important, stress, uh geographics, other things becoming more important. What's critical to them? And if they're really uh, happy with the people, do whatever they can to keep them, whether it's putting in new long-term incentive plans, deferred compensation plans, uh, better better working hours, geographics, other th- anything that will keep them happy is important, but also to evaluate those who are not doing the job. And I'm just gonna give you a quick example of a family office. We have many, I'm sure Neil does too, where the uh, the top executive reporting to the principals is very, very bright, doing a great job, and they love him. However, the way he treats the staff and the people is horrendous. And I don't know whether they don't know that, they don't wanna know that, but they've had turnover because of this one person and it's like they're blind to it. And they really should take a hard look. Uh, And uh, as one of the CEOs of the largest, Company in the United States told me last week it's one of the best times to evaluate your talent because there's a lot of good people out there that, uh, and you could improve. But again, the culture fit—just to conclude on that one—is the most important thing. If they have culture and they've got capability, you want to keep them and do whatever you can to do that.
0: Same question over to you, Neil. Uh, what's the one piece of advice you'd like to leave uh, families today?
1: Yeah, I, I have to agree with my uh, colleague and. Michael, it's, it's really more professionalized management oversight. Uh, the human capital coming into this space is more and more sophisticated, professionalized, um, and, and the management structure and management oversight needs to similarly evolve. And then, as Michael just concluded, and I, I couldn't agree more, just build a strong, focus on building a strong, well-defined culture. Um, There's just no substitute for that. It it permeates everything. It um, keeps people aligned. It keeps people, you know, having having a common purpose and uh, just really helps with the glue. Um, So those would be uh, those would be the two comments. More professionalized management and focus on building a strong well-defined culture.
0: Well, thanks, Neil, and, and thank you, Michael. I really appreciate both of your uh, thoughtful insights today. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with uh, our guests or have any questions, do send us an email to at com. I'd also recommend you, you check out our website where you can find numerous resources, sign up for our newsletter, get this podcast and much, much more in your inbox and learn more about how we help family offices uh, that website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office be sure to subscribe to this podcast on apple spotify or wherever you prefer to listen thank you again to our panel and thank all of you for joining us that's it for today check back with us uh, for a new podcast next week
3: The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.